Thanks for doing Amazing Grace, with a violin even. Let's pray together. Father, as uh, your church gathers this morning around the world, we join with all the crowds in Jerusalem and cry out, Hosanna. And we plead, Lord, save us. Save us from being inwardly focused. Save us from our pride and our arrogance. Save us from our thirst for revenge, from the temptation to control others, from the temptation to put our trust in anything or anyone other than you. Father, we ask that you propel us to tell the story of your love and humility in this holy week. Propel us to tell the story of your power and victory at Easter. Jesus, we pray, Hosanna. Lord, save us on behalf of our friends and our families who don't know you. We ask that you make yourself known to each of them this week and that we offer ourselves as your servants to do what we can to express your love and kindness and peace and joy. And Holy Spirit, on this Palm Sunday, we lift up the leaders of our country and our state and our county and we pray Hosanna. Lord, save us. Draw them closer to Jesus. May their leadership be characterized by wisdom and humility. And finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves. Hosanna. Lord, save us. Save us from our own pride. Save us that we may value reconciliation and forgiveness over the need to control or be right. That we look outside of ourselves to offer self-giving love to others. For peace in the midst of anxiety and in the midst of the unknown. We thank you for answering your, our prayers, Lord, in your presence. We thank you for answering our prayers that um, even Sue and I have experienced this week. And we just thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray this all in the name of the Savior. Amen. Every now and then, during the week, I'll run into people from the congregation, and they'll say, hey, hey, Tommy, what are you preaching on this week? And my answer always is, uh, sin. What else? <laughs> always sin. What else are you going to preach on? Well, actually, today we are going to talk about that a little bit, uh, sin and a little bit of evil. Uh, I do think that uh, we wonder if we... If we, if we could kind of redefine sin, it's just sort of defined it around cultural expectations and, and, uh, and taboos. And all cultures have these kind of cultural taboos that we kind of classify as sin. Uh, Islam, for example, they require that women wear robes and headscarves. And for them, it's a sign of purity. And for most of us in the West, we see it kind of more as a sign of oppression. Uh, Orthodox Judaism uh, they still insist that no one do any activity, any works on Saturday. We're here in America. Uh, Saturday is probably one of the busiest days of the week for most families. Uh, you get into the Christian world, and you may even see categories of sin. There's some that are really, really bad sins, and then there are some of the little lighter sins that are kind of easy to forgive. Uh, my, um, where I worked at this, this college in, in Northwest Iowa, it was a Dutch Reform school. I was neither Dutch nor Reformed, but I worked there anyway. Uh, <clears throat> but they had their issues, their, their obsessions, their cultural expectations uh, in this Dutch community. All the buildings were looked just right out of the architecture of Amsterdam 
uh, and, and the facades are all Dutch facades. Uh, they, they had certain expectations. For example, their, their, man, their lawns were perfectly manicured. They had to be kept clean. Uh, they're very, very frugal people. Waste was always a sin. Our chaplain at the school was very 100% Dutch, and he would use coffee grounds twice before he threw them out. I said, Harlan, life is too short for that. But, but he would do it anyway. He was in my building, and he, had the co- and he, he kind of manned the coffee maker. Uh, but also, you, uh, you, couldn't, um, you weren't supposed to mow your yard on a, on a Sunday. You couldn't do anything on Sunday. You can't buy a gallon of milk in Orange City on Sunday. Everything's shut down. My background is Methodist. <clears throat> we grew up where drinking was a sin, but dancing was okay. My mom's a Southern Baptist. She grew up where dancing and drinking both were sins. And then you got the Catholics who enjoy drinking and dancing. So we've all got these little taboos and we think they're all sins. And, but I think, I wonder, we haven't really come to some objective definition or conclusion as what is a sin. And, and I think it's different than evil. They don't always point to evil. And I'm wondering if we, our obsession over these things, we are trivializing true evil. That these little things have diverted our attention to what is really serious. I mean, you take the Third Reich in Germany before World War II. That emerged in a country that was half Catholic and half Lutheran. And evidently, they took that very seriously. You could just tell by the number of churches in Germany and the number of theological schools in Germany. And yet this arose in a, in a culture like that. When you look at the Bible, you look at the New Testament and see what Paul and, and Jesus have to say about sin, he kind of, you kind of get a different picture. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, Paul describes sin and evil, and he describes it as this almost, he even compares it to the air we breathe. That it's just all around us, and it's just oppressive. And, and I think that we're really doing a terrible disservice when we whittle down the gospel to just deal with these little cultural preoccupations and expectations the gospel becomes just just really a minor thing and we enjoy putting these cultural sins on other people uh, because our ego needs it and it usually is things that we don't have a problem with so that we can feel morally superior and that we can feel a little bit higher up than everybody else and we take the it's our ego who insists on the moral high ground now for example i don't mind having a beer or drinking a glass of wine but i don't have a problem with it i don't i could take it or leave it i just as well have a dr pepper but i can be against it because it makes me morally superior it makes me take the moral high ground And I don't think that's where we were getting at. I don't think that's what the New Testament is getting at. So I think this whole idea of sin and evil is much, much deeper. It's much deeper than those taboos. It has to do something with, it has to do with something that's foundational in our humanness. uh, Something that's primal, a part of us, in who we are. And I'm going to call these, these, these transcendent values that we have. And I call them transcendent because we can't hold them. You know, we can't 
grab hold of them. They're not physical, but we know they're real. And just to mention, I'm just going to mention five this morning. Justice, love, beauty, truth, and power. These things, we know that they're, they're real. But that's really where the evil takes place. That's where we can't, can't compromise on. But they, they know they are real, but the thing is we mess them up. And we ignore them. And when we ignore them, they will come back to bite us almost always. Just an example. The Soviet Union, they had this, this purpose of everything was equal. Everyone was equal. But they ignored beauty. And so they built these, these cinder block apartments where everybody had to live, but no beauty, and the quality of life just plummeted. We may have politicians who think they need to have power so that they can do something good, but they will ignore truth to get there. And so it comes back to bite them eventually and they chip away at the trust and we think that this is built into humanness and people will, will say these things are built into us and they they're indications that they point to God that we are carrying the image of God and many people will say that and I agree with that that these things do point us to God and we think that that's that's because we, we bear the the image of God we are we are the children and we know that it's that it's even part of us because you know it from the very beginning. I mean, one of the first things that kids learn on the playground is that's not fair. They know justice when they see it, and they know injustice when they see it. And I know it, and we get it. I was on jury duty last week with Oscar and Helen's son, of all things. I spent the afternoon with their son. He said, yeah, I'm Oscar's son. I go, no way. <clears throat> And I'm not going to give you the details, but we've, it was a kind of relatively minor infraction, and we found him guilty. But I struggled with that. I still, I still am haunted by that because I, I, he was guilty, but I think. But I told the jurors, my fellow jurors, that if I was in the same situation as him, I could very easily see myself doing the same thing. And so I say I want justice, but if it were me... I prefer mercy. So we do kind of mess it all up, and they do point to God, but in a different way that we think. So there's, <clears throat> there's something else that points us to God, and it is actually the messing up that points us to God. And we'll get that in a minute. You're probably thinking, well, what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, it has a lot to do with Palm Sunday, because Palm Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week. And Holy Week is where we see all these values collapse. They all collapse in this one week in the most extreme form possible. What we think is all this stuff, that, that, the, that these things that point us to God, it is actually our messing them up that point to God. And so when we begin Holy Week, we see three different forces sort of come and converge in this one event. Three gale winds, I mean, three weather events. I mean, if you've been following the weather this last couple of days, I, you know, in our part, in Sue and I's part of the world, uh, part of the country, they've had some serious weather issues in the Midwest and in the South with tornadoes and deadly things. And you, they, they, have, they talk about these different weather systems that all converge at one time and then just cause a lot of devastation. Well, that's kind of what we have here. We have these three forces, these three gale winds that kind of converge at this one, one moment that cause something really drastic to happen. 
the first gale wind is Rome. Rome, I'm calling it the gale wind of intimidation. It is a, a new superpower is on, is on the rise here during the time of Jesus. Uh, Rome existed, it's, it's been taken over the world. Rome existed for years as a, public, as a republic until Julius Caesar came along. And he wanted power and control and to become an emperor. And because of his ambition and eventually his assassination, Rome became an empire. And they were plunged into this bloody civil war after his assassination. The son, his adopted son Octavian wins. He emerges as the winner. Winner. And so he is starting to take control more and more, more and more land around Rome. And so good news began to spread throughout the empire. This is the news. Listen to the good news. We have a new emperor. We have a new emperor, Octavius, who's called Augustus. He is now king of the world. And the thing is, when he became king, when he became emperor, he deified his father, Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar is now a god, and Octavian, who takes the name Augustus, which means worthy of honor, majestic, he takes the title Caesar and emperor, and so he calls himself the son of God. And so this news is going out throughout the world. The son of God is now king of the world. Good news, the gospel. And then when Octavian died, Tiberius, his son, took over, and what did he do? He demonized Octavian. And he said, now the son of the divine Augustus is now king of the world. And Tiberius even went one step further and named himself chief priest of this cult. That's Rome. And the Middle East was super important to Rome. Why? Resources. Just like today. Although it's not oil, unless it's olive oil maybe. <laughs> but they wanted grain. Rome was so overly populated, they needed grain. And they needed grain from Egypt, and they had to transport it through the Middle East to get to Rome. So why was it important? They needed to keep peace in the Middle East. They needed to keep the place without war, without unrest, without protest, so that they could transport the Rome, the, to Rome the, the grain. And so there was a governor placed over the area. And his job was to administer justice, was to tax the people, and to maintain order. Remove all unrest. That was his job. And so they're basically just doing their job. Trying to keep peace. And they did this through fear and terror and violence. That's how they kept the peace. You have Rome. You have the second gale wind of Jerusalem, of exploitation. The story of Israel, they believed, was going somewhere. They knew that Israel was headed somewhere. God had a destiny for Israel. And they, they had stories about their history. And these weren't just quaint little romantic stories about their history. These are majestic stories that God had saved them out of Egypt, taken them through the, the wilderness, and planted them in the promised land. And God, planned, and God promised to do it again. So that's what they were all hoping for. That's what they were all looking for, looking for, that this was God was going to do it again. If you want to understand Judaism during the time of Jesus, you have to understand the Exodus. This is going to happen again. It was very, a story that was specific. It was complex. It was detailed that God was going to do this again. 
And so you had these leaders in Jerusalem. You had the Pharisees who said, well, we're going to get everybody to obey the law down to the minutia, and then God will have to act. We even see this today, a lot of Christians doing things in the world to try to provoke Jesus to come back. Well, that's what they were doing, the Pharisees. The Sadducees, they were collaborating with Rome. They had, pre, they had positions of power, of priests. And the, chief, and the governor, he appointed the priest. My little air thing keeps coming off. They, they appointed the priest, and they could get rid of the priest if they wanted to. So they collaborated with Rome. And then you had these other group of Essenes who kind of re, said, well, we're the true Israel. We're just going to separate from you guys. And when God comes back, he's going to wipe you out like he did with Noah. And he's going to save the true Israel, which is us. So we had all these people who were thinking this is what's going to happen, and they were collaborating, and they were working, trying to jockey for power, and all those wonderful human values collapse right before our eyes. They all are damaged and collapse. They think they're just doing their job, but it's really a struggle for power. And everything comes down to that. We love power. We love power because we long for it. We covet it. We think it's going to give us stability. It's going to give us control. It's going to make us heroes. It's going to make us champions. Except our kingdoms, our kingdoms always depends on having power over someone else. Our kingdoms depend on weapons. Our kingdoms depend on force. And in Holy Week, all these things come down to this, this collapse of these values of justice and love and beauty and truth and even power. That's why Holy Week is so important. We got one, one gale wind left, and that's God. God also meets them. And we've called this, my Bible calls this chapter 11, Mark chapter 11 that, that Rob just read. My Bible calls it the triumphal entry. Well, it was anything but that. It was not a triumphal entry. It was an untriumphal entry. Everyone knew what a triumphal entry looked like. It looked like Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, he would enter into a town through broken gates and shattered walls. And then they would give his soldiers three days to rape and pillage anything they wanted. That's a triumphal entry. To come in on a war horse. Not one that comes in on a donkey. There are two parades that day. One coming in from the west with Pilate. He's bringing extra soldiers from Caesarea because it's Passover. So we have to ask the question, why did Jesus choose Passover as the moment to make his move? Because that's what everybody was expecting, a new exodus, including Pilate. He comes in with extra soldiers from the west, and they enter into the western gate on a war horse. Jesus, on the other hand, comes in from the east on a donkey with a prophetic citation from Zechariah about the king entering the donkey. But what's interesting, in Matthew, Matthew talks about this donkey having a colt. So he is coming into town through the gate on a female donkey who is nursing a colt. You can't get more of an antithesis of a triumphal entry than that. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. This is not a movement 
like Alexander the Great or Octavian or Tiberius or even Pontius Pilate. This is totally different. Totally different. The atmosphere is full of, of, of nationalism, of pride, and of hope, and the crowd is out there, and it's a drama that Jesus is almost uh, planning out. It's almost like he's lampooning Rome, coming in on a donkey. And the people are shouting. They're waving palm branches. Why, why, why palm branches? Well, that goes, that's a throwback to the Maccabeans when they defeated the Seleucids. And they all waved prom, palms as the symbol of, of Israel. And then they took off their coats and they laid them on the trail for the donkey to walk over them. Why? Because the king's going to come and, they can, and the king can ride on their backs all the way to victory if he wants to. So they're all doing that and they're all thinking this is how it's going. This, this is the people that's ready for war. They're ready to spill the blood of the Romans. But Jesus turns power on its head. He turns it upside down. After he comes in, he goes and visits the temple, which we'll look at in just a minute. And what he sees is collaboration. He comes in on a donkey, the antithesis of a triumphal entry. And just as the Maccabeans, what they do when they defeated the Seleucids? They went and cleaned out the temple. What did Jesus do when he entered? He went and cleaned out the temple, but different. He didn't destroy it. He didn't tear it down. It was just a symbolic protest. It was an annoyance. Because those people would be back the next day with all their booths set up to change, to change the money, to offer the sacrifices, to sell you the animals. And what he's telling us is he's saying he's symbolically shutting it down. He says this temple is no longer a house for God. It is a den for thieves. And the temple is no longer where God meets people. And we know from John, he says that where God meets people now is me, his person, the Messiah. The temple is closed. This was real revolutionary. We know the story, what happens. Through the week, the crowd turns on Jesus. Why? I always, that always bugged me as a kid. I always heard this story my whole life, and it always bugged me. How can they go from Hosanna, Hosanna, King of Kings, you know, Lord of Lords, and that's exactly what they called Jesus. He was the son of David, and everybody knew what the son of David meant. It meant the king. Everybody was doing that. And then just a few days later, they're saying, crucify him. How did that happen? Well, think about it. The next time this crowd, the next time Jesus appears publicly, he's in shackles, arrested, ready to be crucified. And I tell you, you turn a mob, you give a mob disappointment, and they will turn on you. And so one minute we're thinking he's the hope, he's going to ride us in, he's going to spill Roman blood, he's going to go to victory. And the next minute, he's tied up, ready for crucifixion. And so what do they do? They yell for Barabbas instead. They want a real revolutionary. They want a guy who has killed and will kill again. They want the meanest SOB they can find to fight, his, fight their battles for them. And so they tell Jesus to get crucified. That's how quickly it turned. 
And we see all of these values collapse right before our eyes. Theologians love to theorize and come up with formulas to describe what Holy Week is all about. You might have heard the theory of substitutionary atonement, for example. I think that if we reduce Holy Week to a formula or a theory, then we haven't caught up with the Bible. Because the Bible tells us a lot more than that. The Bible tells us this rich story that, that begins with Genesis where all these strands come together and converge in this one moment. And it can't be reduced to a formula or a theory. It is just this, when we get the text, we get the story from the Gospels, and they don't give us a theory, they don't give us a formula, they give us this story, this climactic story that begins with Genesis of what God is doing. And it's all about, this event is all about this transcendent values just collapsing right before our eyes. And so these values do point us to God, but they point us to God because of our failures, because they have collapsed. The values have just completely been obliterated. Justice is perverted. Yes, whether this man last week was guilty or innocent, okay, he, he may have been innocent of this crime, but he's not innocent of others, and neither are we. But here was a man who was truly innocent. God himself, perversion of justice. Love and beauty, he comes in with waving with palm branches and cloaks and singing and yelling and shouting, love and beauty, and then a week, they're calling for him to be crucified. Judas, one of his disciples, betrays him. Peter denies him. Love and beauty collapsed. Truth, he stands before the Roman governor, and what does Pontius Pilate say? What is truth? In other words, truth is what the empire says it is. We're in charge of truth. Thank you very much. We decide what is true and what is not. All of these things just collapse. And power, he comes in on a donkey and gets arrested and crucified, turning power on its head. And yet, this is exactly where God meets us. He meets us right here, not where we think we can meet him, not where we get up to these high apexes or high mountaintop experiences where we, we get so just and so full of love that God is going to be there, just the opposite. We collapse, and this is where God meets us. This is where he chooses to meet us. This is where we find God. So hopes, hope in the midst of collapsing values. Just want to leave you with three truths uh, from this, and we'll be looking at hope a little bit more in a few weeks. God meets us exactly where our values have collapsed it's not where we think it is and that's the irony of all this it's not at our purest high expressions of love and justice and all those things it's where they just completely disappear from us when we i've heard preachers talk about tragedies that happen like climate tragedies like tornadoes like we've seen hurricanes earthquakes fires uh, other things even 9-11 that it's because it's some punishment from God because certain people or various people have committed various sins. 
But the way I read the New Testament is, no, this isn't God separating himself from us. This is exactly where God meets us. This is exactly where God sees us, and we see him. You remember the story of the blind man being, being healed, and the, blind man, and the disciples asked Jesus, well, who sinned, Jesus, the, the parents of this man or the man himself, that he was born blind? And he goes, that's the wrong question. The wrong question. He's blind because God shows his glory through this, not through just some razzle-dazzle miracle, but because this is where God meets us when we are blind and he gives us sight. This is where God meets us. God is not just playing with puppets with the world. And at this point in, in, the, in the Holy Week is where personal, political, and social tensions just kind of reach a screaming point and this is where God meets them. Him riding on the donkey reveals his glory in a very paradoxical way because it reveals his self-giving love. That's where the power is. That's where we have the power. Number two, we must rediscover the spirituality of imperfection and powerlessness. We must rediscover the spirituality of imperfection and powerlessness. When Christianity aligned itself with the empire in around 313 AD, this idea of powerlessness and imperfection got downgraded to a subtext. And you'll see it through different streams throughout history. You'll see it uh, go on. But the official Christianity aligned themselves with the empire and this idea of imperfection and powerlessness kind of just got downgraded. And we all say, we sing Amazing Grace, we all say, you know, saved a wretch like me and uh, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But we still like to see things from the top down instead of from the bottom up. We do say all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, but where's the room for the first will be last and the last will be first? It's a different perspective. It's a different position. We see things from the bottom up instead of the top down. But we still love this moral achievement. We still love our performance. We still love being considered worthy. We still love thinking, you know, it's just the willpower, I can do it. We still love the flash and the razzle-dazzle. But we need to rediscover there's a spirituality between of imperfection and powerlessness, and this is how we meet God in humility, not in arrogance. And finally, the Spirit calls and equips us to be wise human beings. And this is what's amazing, that He will actually call us and equip us to be wise human beings. And, and what, God, what the Gospels say about Jesus in that once-in-a-lifetime, once once-in-an-eternity decisive event of the Word becoming flesh, He now applies to us with the Holy Spirit. And the Word still becomes flesh. The Word becomes flesh by hearing the Word of God read. The Word becomes flesh <clears throat> in our prayer life. The Word becomes flesh when uh, the gentle care of doctors and nurses. The Word becomes flesh in our weeping. The Word becomes flesh just maybe in that phone call or that email. The Word becomes flesh, and I, as a pastor, I've seen the Word become flesh in the joy of weddings, and I've seen the Word become flesh by this, this, this respectful, 
dignified attitude that funerals, funeral home staff have sometimes. I think the word becomes flesh every time I go buy peaches in August and apples and pears in the fall. The word becomes flesh through us by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And he also comes, becomes flesh when we celebrate the sacrament, the sacrament of communion. It is the symbolic way that we recognize Christ's death and resurrection. So we are going to do that this morning on Palm Sunday. It is the moment when God, in a symbolic way, gives himself for us and we take it in. And one of the reasons I like doing it by intention, the way we do it on the first Sunday of every month, is I get to say, and the people up here, and I have some, uh, Oscar and Helen and Robert be helping me, we get to say, the body of Christ. And we don't, God doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. God doesn't wait for us to, to clean up our world. He comes to the place where everything seems to have crashed to the ground. And all those values that we think are so important for humans, and we realize we have messed them up completely, this is where God meets us. Here at Shepherd of the Valley, we believe all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You, me, everyone in this room. And God doesn't have to wait until we get it all together and we get it all cleaned up for us to come to the table. He welcomes us to the table when they all come crashing down. So wherever you are in your life, wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, wherever you are, you're welcome at the table. This is where God meets us. So I'm going to read the, as an invitation to the table. Let me give you some instructions first, and then I'm going to read this introduction to the to invitation to the table. We're going to do it by intention. There's bread here, and we just ask you to take the, come up forward after the worship team comes and uh, take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice, and you can t eat it right here. We also have the little kits, uh, especially if you're sick. I would, I, I would ask you to do that, to take one of the little cups with you back to your seat. It has a uh, wafer and, a, and juice in that as well. Um, the little crackers are gluten-free, so for those who are, are gluten intolerant, it's, uh, we have that option as well. So that's how we will celebrate. The worship team will come first, and then we'll ask you just to come up and just take a piece of bread and dip in the juice and uh, go back to your seat. So here's the, um, here's the invitation. It's a companion passage. In my opinion, it's a companion passage to Holy Week. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Jesus Christ had, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. By looking like other men and by sharing in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of the cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.